this is Hudson Ranny. Um, you were listening to I Know I Know a Solo Beatles podcast where we talk all things Solo Beatles. Now, um, this interview that I'm about to present to you kind of came off in a flash. Um, Michael. <laughs> um, so, I'm going to present to you my the most, the interview that I am so proud to present to you because I, this was amazing. Um, I'm going to present to you my interview with Michael Lindsay Hogg. Um, Michael worked on Let It Be and was with the Beatles and Stones. We talked about the Stones as well because of Charlie's uh, passing recently. But I want to thank you for listening. Send me an email at BeatlesRadioShow at iCloud.com if you like. And uh, thank you all. Please enjoy. It came okay, fine. And I think um, he—I think it came out on a Friday, and he said he was walking around London on a sunny day on the Saturday, and and um, people's windows were open, and out of every house he walked by, they were playing Sgt. Pepper. What it, I mean, it was an extraordinary album, an extraordinary time, and such uh, such a concept, but also. A Day in the Life is, is such a staggering song. What's your favorite Beatles song, Michael? My favorite Beatles song, I mean, that's like saying, what's your favorite f- food? Or favorite <laughs> child. Right, yes, favorite <laughs> child. Yeah, you're not supposed to ha- have um, favorite children. You're supposed to think of them all equally. Um, I like, you know, I like Love Me Do. I like Penny Lane. I like Day in the Life. I like... Uh, let it be I like long and winding road I like and listen there are two and I like George's songs too I mean I mean that's a whole separate sub chapter about the Beatles and then his own solo career um and of course imagine we're not going to forget imagine um and I also love the ballad of John and Yoko oh I love that song I love that and you know McCartney you would know of course that McCartney's singing harmonies on that yeah, which I, I think is really interesting. Um, with the, uh, when did you like first, when did you first, you know, get into the film and the arts? What, when was that? My, my, um, my mother was an actress. Um, she used to work for Warner Brothers. Um, <clears throat> way before your time and probably before the time of your parents. Her name was Geraldine Fitzgerald. She was in Dark Victory with Betty Davis. She was nominated for an Oscar for Wuthering Heights. So I partly grew up in California till I, so I met some people from that world. Um, Humphrey Bogart, um, Betty Davis, John Houston, when I was a kid. Oh, wow. When I was very small. But, they, but I remember them as being nice to me. And um, I didn't have a particularly easy time in school. So if anybody was nice to me, that was very welcome. And then we, um, we, my mother remarried, we moved to New York. Um, and then when I was about 14, I was very out of it kid. I couldn't read till I was almost nine. I was overweight. I wanted to be a baseball player, but I only got two hits in four years. So that was not going to be my career. And I remember going to a, um, my mother said, do you want to come to rehearsal to play I'm in? I didn't know what, it was a school vacation. I said, yeah, okay, sure. And um, so I was 14 and I went down and 
again, I, I walked into this theater rehearsal room. It was, they were rehearsing in an old theater way downtown. And I thought that the, the sense of purpose, um, all people, the people engaged in a, in a common project um, with seriousness, but also with good humor, that seemed to be a nice world to live in. And so that's what got me interested in what you broadly might call the theater. Um, that, but then when I was 15, I had a kind of revelation which I was in a, I was in a boarding school um, and a friend of mine said, um, Hey, I just got this. I had this record. My brother sent to me, come and listen to it with me. And it was a 45 and it was in an old, you know, paper sleeve the way they used to be. And he pulled the record out and he said, have you ever heard of um, Elvis Presley? And I said, no. And he put it on and it was heartbreak, um, heartbreak hotel. And I thought, I thought, ah, there is music for me somewhere in the world. So from the time I was 15, I really, really loved rock and roll. I'm, I'm very unmusical. Like, like, I have a lot of friends who like classical music. I mean, I, I like it, but I can never hear the theme, the, the repetition of the theme, the, the minor parts. The th- I, I have no musical sense whatsoever at all. And so, but then anyway, life went on and through a series of um, coincidences and good luck, I found myself at the age of 24 in England um, directing this live television show called Ready, Steady, Go. And um, it was, it had England, as you know, at that time, 1965, Six, sixty-four, sixty-three. From, from the beginning of the Beatles, then the Rolling Stones, and the Who. Yeah. Everything was bursting out of this tiny little island, and I found myself directing this live rock and roll show, on which we had the Rolling Stones were on regularly, the Who, the Animals, the Kinks, the Yardbirds, all those people. The Beatles, not so much, because they had become too famous, and it began to be very irksome for them to appear in public yeah um, and, unless it was like at, at Shea Stadium or something like that partly because of the security issues they were they were real and genuine because um, the, the fans the crowd uh, was so hungry for them was so hungry for connection to them in the same way that they the Beatles or the Rolling Stones were avid for connection to the audience but the audience is very avid to connection to them. And, and you know, they, they pull the door off a limousine in order to get to get near them. Anyway, so that's so to answer your question, which I've done in a roundabout way, it sort of started when I was very young. And then it then middle grounded when I became very interested in the theater and, and the theater would mean television or movies wherever I could get a job. And then when I was 25, starting to direct rock and roll. And then that's when I met the Beatles. I mean, were you a fan beforehand? Yes. I was working in Ireland, Irish television, as a floor manager, who's the guy with the earphones trying to tell the people on the floor what the director wants them to do. And I had to go to work. I had to be there about 8 o'clock in the morning. And I was sitting in the kitchen of the, the apartment I was sharing with a friend. And I was drinking coffee and eating toast. And on came on the radio... Right, and please please me or love me do, 
you know, first time in 1963. You probably know better than I which song that would be, or maybe both yeah. of them. Anyway, and then, and I thought, whoa, whoa, what's this? And then the guy said, um, and that's by a new group called the Beatles. And, but I thought it was spelled B-E-E-T-L-E-S, Beatles. And I thought, why are they calling themselves the Beatles? I mean, a beetle is just a small little insect. Why call itself the Beatles? I didn't realize it was B-E-A-T-L-E-S. So that was the first time I heard them. And, um, and then I, I went on, uh, <laughs> you know, listening to them and, um, and then being aware of them and then being aware of them on the Sullivan show in 64, um, when, as you know, President Kennedy had been killed in November 63. Right. The Beatles were on Sullivan in 64 in February. And America was in kind of mourning after the president had been killed and did not expect itself to feel good again. And then the Beatles came on in, in February 64 and brought with them joy. And so the country suddenly got out of its desperate shroud of unhappiness and embraced these four kids from England. And, and I think that was very, very fortuitous in a way. Um, and then, uh, then I remember when I was in Ireland going to see Hard Day's Night when it came out. I took, a day, I took an afternoon off work and uh, went down to a small cinema by the Liffey, which is the river in Dublin. And um, I thought, wow, that's so great. And little did I think that 18 months later, I'd be working with them. You know, you know life, life is a very odd thing. And there can be so many happenstances and funny things happening and coincidences or, or things you take advantage of that looking back, you never could have imagined would really happen. But in my case, I, I was lucky. I was ambitious. And so I was looking for opportunity, but I also was lucky. I would agree. Um, and with this, and you directed Let It Be. Um, I know in 2004, there was going to be a DVD release. Um, right. Did you have any involvement in that? Yeah, I've been um, advocating for years <clears throat> for Let It Be to come out again. Because I think when it was released, it was released in 1970. And we shot it in January 1969. And when we shot it, we, we, we took place over the month of January. They, they weren't breaking up. They, 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 you know, they were fractious with, with each other occasionally, but they weren't breaking up. But then as the year went on and we were cutting Let It Be, other things came into play, which was sort of a, a blow up between the four of them about many issues to do with money being for one to being who they wanted to look after their business, Alan Klein or John Eastman. Um, and then when the movie came out in America in May 1970, which had been shot in January 1969, they'd announced their breakup a month before in April, 1970. And so everybody looked at it like, oh my God, this is such a tragic movie. It's so awful, the Beatles have broken up. But in fact, when we shot the movie, they hadn't broken up. 
And in fact, they were getting on as, as well. Well, you know, they made their final album six months later. So they were getting on. But it always had, in my view, a bad rap. So I was always advocating for it to come out again. And over the years from the late 90s, Apple was making a sort of an in-house documentary, documentaries, more than, than one, to go along with the re-release of Let It Be, sort of to explain it and to, explain, to make a little documentary about the little of the documentary. But um, they never were quite right. And, and time went on and the, the Beatles knew that Let It Be would be good to come out at some point. But they were sort of waiting and they couldn't figure out when, this Apple, when I say Apple, that would be Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr. And as it turned out, the widows of um, John, Yoko, and yeah. of George. Um, and um, so it was kind of on hold. But I always thought, talking about my movie, that it should be seen again and would be re-seen by new eyes and not eyes which had been so affected by uh, correlating their breakup with the movie, which basically had nothing to do with each other. Um, so that's the, to answer your question about 2004, yes. You know, cause I've always been in a funny way, part of the, the Apple family because I've known them for such a long time. Um, and, and, also admire them so much. I mean, the four of them originally, and, and Paul, of, who wouldn't, and, and, and Ringo. Um, so I've always been sort of involved in what's going on, especially I'm sort of like a mother hen trying to protect Let It Be, which I, I, I think pretty sure will come out after Peter's comes out, um, after Peter's has had its full and proper run. So the answer, to answer your question, Hudson, yes, I, I have been involved with that. And... um. Have you helped Peter Jackson with the new film at all? No. Um, uh, A, because, and I end up just pick up your word, uh, helped. Um, no, he, he, he didn't, he, he wouldn't, he didn't need my help. Um, but, but what you're really asking is, have I, I think, have I been involved with what yeah. Peter's doing? Um, peripherally but not really by choice and by my choice and, and Peter's choice Peter Peter didn't need me but also I did it 50 years ago and so when um Apple told me that Peter was gonna take a, a whack at the footage um and they said you know how are you about that and I said well I'm thrilled because uh I, I did it 50 years ago and and I and I and I I, I didn't want I didn't want to do it anymore. I'd spent six months in the cutting room then, and, and the movie that came out, my movie, was to do with the times, and also to do with how much screen time we'd have. Was, we had like an hour and a half. It was a part of United Artists deal. Uh, I wanted some more talking in the movie. They wanted more songs. Um, I mean, I got a lot of what I wanted in the movie. I didn't have as much John and Yoko as I wanted for various reasons. Um, the, my Let It Be was was like 30 or 40 minutes longer in the rough cut, and I cut it down. Um, I, I was thrilled that Peter was the person who was going to do it. First of all, I, I admire him. Not only Lord of the Rings movies, but, but one or two of the movies he made early on. 
Uh, I mean, he's not only a, a director who works in the massive scale, but he also works in the intimate scale. And um, I also knew he had the technology in New Zealand in his own studios, his own facility to probably um, do things with the footage and especially with the sound, which we couldn't have done 50 years ago. And so um, I've also, I also, I've seen bits when we've been in this, when we've been in Los Angeles together for various reasons, we did some interviews together and stuff like that. And then also when I first met Peter, which was over a year, a year and a half ago now, that was in LA and he, he showed me bits, technical bits, and, and then a little cut material. I didn't want to be involved because that was his, that was what he was going to do. And it, it's, it's taken him like two and a half or three years to put this thing together. And I had other things, because I'm painting a lot. Now. Anyway, we had a very interesting talk when we first met, and he asked me to tell him the story of Let It Be, which I've sort of gone through with you a few minutes ago about when it was made, they were together. When it was released, they'd broken up. And prior to it being released, everybody was kind of losing interest in it because there were much more pressing issues at Apple, which was the breakup of the Beatles. And so by the time it was going to come out, the only person who was kind of looking after the movie was me. Apple had sort of said, oh, yeah, it's fine. You know, United Artists is going to do it. But I was talking to the distributors about when it was going to come out. And so, so Peter said to me, he said, so if it weren't for you, Let It Be was really an orphan. And I thought that was a very uh, accurate word for uh, how it had been left to look after itself. Um, and he's, um, he also is going on with, with Peter he has an entirely different canvas he's able to, to work on at the moment, which is a much bigger canvas than I had because he has more time. When it was going to be a, a feature release before the Disney Plus release, he had two, two and a half hours for a variety of reasons. 50 years ago, I had like an hour and 20 minutes, an hour 40 minutes tops, but it ended up an hour and 20 minutes. <clears throat> so Peter has, and now as, it's, it's, as you know, as well as I, it's going to be three to our, uh, it's gonna be six hours basically. And Peter's always said, what he's doing is he's making a documentary about the making of a documentary. And so as well as being able to go through the genesis of a song with the Beatles starting from the first chords and, and taking it all the way through, if that's what he chooses to do, he's also, I think, going through the the interplay, the conversations we, they, me, and other people had about what we all wanted to do together. It was originally, as you may not may know, it was going to be a television special yeah. that fell apart. Then a television special suddenly overnight turned into a documentary. And and um so Peter's got all of that in the movie too. And um I I'm seeing it in I think October. He's, he hasn't he hasn't finished it yet. I mean he's he's been working so hard, and but just going back to um, the, the audio, I, I, he he did send me an example that was so great. You know, often when a musician might be talking, they're noodling on their guitar as they talk. As yeah. they're talking. But now we couldn't 
with the technology we had in 1969, we couldn't separate the tracks. So you, if, if when the guy was talking, if he played a particularly loud, yeah. no, you wouldn't hear what he was saying. But Peter has got the technology over there that he can separate the tracks, which is extraordinary. So therefore, the noodle guitar, which is underneath, you can now hear the dialogue. Um, he's, he, see, the thing about Peter is he's technically very, very savvy. So you, you marry technique with talent. And I'm really looking forward to what he's done. And, and then I think, you know, <clears throat> I'm, in, I'm in the movie as probably comic relief trying to, he said, he said, trying to get the Beatles to do anything together at that time is like trying to herd cats. Yeah. Um, but I, I couldn't be happier that Peter's the one who's got his hands in the footage. I, and I mean that genuinely. It's, it's, and he, he's also been very, um, insofar as it suited both of us, inclusive to me. He's been friendly. He's advocated that Let It Be come out again. He's offered some of his equipment over there if we need it for various aspects of, you know, reconstituting Let It Be, which, I mean, it's ready to go. I mean, we've been working on it for years. Uh, and the, the plan is at the moment, but as we all know these days, things can change, is that Peter's will come out, I think, in November. And when it's had a a, a healthy and, and lively run on Disney, that Let It Be will come out in some form again, which is what I've always wanted, which goes back to your question a little while ago about have I been involved since 2004? Yeah. Have you kept in touch with Paul and Ringo? Yeah, insofar as it's been, um, I'm much more in touch with Paul than Ringo because Ringo uh, has said he didn't, has, has lately has said he hadn't, he didn't like Let It Be. Uh, but I doubt he's seen it in 50 years. And, uh, and, um, and then Paul said at one point, you know, it represented a sad time in their lives. But uh, yeah, we, we've talked about things and, and we've talked, I mean, listen, over the years, um, we've talked a lot about mainly partly to do with Let It Be, partly to do with other things. Um, in, so therefore, if I have queries or if anything like that, I tend to get in touch with Paul more. Um, when when um, <clears throat> when we put out the book about Ready, Steady, Go, which is a totally separate book, but if, if you're interested in rock and roll history, there's a wonderful book about the show Ready, Steady, Go, written by Andy Neal. And then I wanted Paul to be part of that, <clears throat> and <laughs> because the Beatles have been on it. And then I said, all you need to do is this and that and maybe write a piece for it, like Mick Jagger's done. And he said, no, that sounds too much like homework. And he said, I never liked homework. Um, yes. I, and also, you know, we let's go back to Paul for a second. Um, an extraordinary artist. Uh, lucky in some ways. Um, the voice of an angel. Uh, he, can, he can write songs in so many different idioms. Love songs, uh, hot rock and roll songs. Uh, and then plus which, as, as you know as well as I do, he's a left-handed bass player. And so the bass in Beatles records has a whole different life than, he's just, than if he were just keeping times with the drums. Uh, he's, he's one of the, the great 
artists of the 20th and now the 21st century and and how it came about that these four kids from Liverpool got together. I mean, Ringo, as you know, is the last one in, but he certainly has earned his place there because he's one of the best rock and roll drummers ever. And then this, the strange mixture of how John and Paul, both of whom were joined by their musical taste, but also because uh, when they were in their teens, they suffered the loss of their mother, which I always thought was a, a bonding thing, a, a tragic but bonding thing. And then George was, the, was Paul's pal from high school. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I think, you know, I, you know, you said Sergeant Pepper, and, and I think if one's going to follow any artistic group, there's so much in the Beatles. It's not only all the stuff that we hear, it's all the stuff that we learn about them, because also they're incredibly well documented. Um, and so that's kind of my Beatles story. Um, anything else cross your mind at the moment? Let's talk Rolling Stones for a minute, because we just suffered Charlie Watts' death. Um, how did that come about? Was that through that TV show as well? Yeah. Um, the Rolling Stones and I first met in 19... Spring 65. I was 24. Mick was... How was two years old. He wasn't... I think he was 20 then. Um, and the song was The Last Time. Uh, B-Side Play With Fire, which is one of my favorite of their songs. Um, in the next year or so, Ready, Steady, Go! and the Rolling Stones really clicked because we loved their music and they liked working with us because at a certain point, Ready, Steady, Go! had live sound. They didn't have to mime anymore and, and we took a lot of care with the sound. And also we were the hot show. I mean, you know, we had James Brown special. We had, pe we had people that other shows hadn't heard of. You won't believe it. So um, I did the Rolling Stones uh, several times. Um, have you seen your mother, baby, standing in the shadows? Before that, I did Satisfaction with them and a couple of other songs. And then we did a Rolling Stones special. Three weeks later, we did Satisfaction again. Then the next year, we did Painted Black, uh, which was probably one of the best things I've ever done. And Mick and I were getting on very well at the time because when we were doing Painted Black, the title stuck, stuck in my head. And so I called him up and I said, I've got this idea that maybe after every verse, put your hands up and in the studio, we take a bank of lights out. So eventually we paint the studio black and it's yeah. just, it's just you in the spotlight. We like that bit too. But if you, if you can, I'll, I'll send you my website if I haven't already and you can see painted black. It's pretty good. Anyway, then ready city goes off the air and then I, I done a couple of videos with the Beatles, Rain and, and the paperback writer. And the Rolling Stones were wanting to do their own videos, not wanting to turn up on television shows where they wouldn't be well shot and they, they wouldn't be allowed to sing their lyrics because of Ed Sullivan, whatever. And so I did the Rolling Stones' first um, videos, which were um, Jumping Jack Flash and Child of the Moon. Child of the Moon was interesting because they weren't miming. In fact, they weren't singing at all. It was just the track played over visuals with a little story. Anyway, they liked Jumping Jack Flash a lot. And they, with Mick and Keith, if they like it, that's good. And if they don't like it, you know, they, they wave goodbye. 
Um, and so then um, later that same year, um, Nick called and um, said, you know, we're thinking of maybe trying to do some sort of television special uh, because the Beatles had done one the year before, which is Magical Mystery Tour. And they they were friends. I mean, Lennon and McCartney had written, I think, the first Stone song to go to number one, I Want to Be Your Man. Yeah. Yeah, I think that were you done probably better than I. And then gave it to Ringo, obviously. Yes. <laughs> Poor Ringo. <laughs> Poor Ringo. Poor Ringo. He got a, he got um, the little help from my friends. So that was good. Anyway, yes. um, so they wanted to do a special. And so then together we did uh, the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, um, which which is good. And and uh, is like a a, 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 a was a buried treasure of its times because it had the Who, it had the Stones, it had John Lennon, it had Eric Clapton. It was the period. It was the times, and it was absolutely great. <clears throat> it wasn't shown for twenty eight years. <laughs> it we finished it in nineteen sixty eight sixty nine. It wasn't shown to the to the New York the New York Film Festival in nineteen ninety six, which is a long time in the icebox. Yeah. Uh, but it's very good, and and it's lasted so. Going back to your question, that show was where I met everybody. And when I was doing it, the Beatles weren't on it anymore, but they used to watch it because it was the cool show. But that's where I met, and consequently, because I worked with the Rolling Stones, that's where I met The Who, and I did their first video. Uh, and it, so uh, it was, I, I wanted to have a lucky break, and I did, but also... I, in one way, I was the right person to do it because going back to what we talked about earlier, I loved Elvis, Elvis Presley. And that, that's the record I heard only 10 years before when I was in America and now I was in England. And most of the directors who were directing those kind of shows, music shows, which used to be called in England, light entertainment, which is really, if you want entertainment, it's not having to be too light. They were older. Um, and when I say older now, looking back, they're young, but they were in their 40s. And they they thought rock and roll was a fad. Yeah, they were, they'd do the show. They, they enjoyed it, you know. But they thought rock and roll was like the hula hoop. Yeah. It wouldn't last. And um, I actually thought rock and roll was important. And then I was more or less the same age they all were. I was I was the same age as John. John and I were born the same year, so was Ringo. <clears throat> I'm three years older than Nick, Keith, et cetera. Charlie uh, was... Uh, a year younger than me. Um, and that's how you introduce this subject. Um, that's That's been a, a, a devastating blow to uh, everyone who uh, loved, the Rolling, loved the Rolling Stones and who are part of what broadly you might call their world. I did their videos for 15 years. Um, yeah. Charlie was a very unusual man, um, peculiar in a wonderful way, as, as you might have read. He didn't, yeah. drive, he didn't drive, but he, he bought an Alfa Romeo so he could sit in the seat and look at the dashboard. Yeah. And um, he was very, he, he didn't wear scarves and bright jackets. He was very well tailored with his, with his clothes from Savile Row Tailors in London. And then he was this extra, when we shot, um, uh, Child of the Moon, we were driving back together in a, in a van, 
driven by Ian Stewart, who used to be with the Brothers, but he then became their road manager, but much more than that. Stu was driving and I was in the passenger seat and Charlie was in the back and we were just in a little van driving back to London. And I said, you know, is, is it really great being in a rock and roll band, especially like what the Rolling Stones? He said, no, it's all right. It's, it's, it's all right. He said, it's all right. But he said, he said, I'd really much rather be paying, be playing brushes in a, in a jazz group. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what he was interested in. And, um, so what he brought to the Rolling Stones was not only the time he kept, which sometimes is almost after the beat, but also an entirely different way of playing rock and roll. Now, I'm not musical enough to totally explain it, but you, you might know. He also had this tiny little drum kit. I mean, he only had four drums or something. Yeah. And um, he was... Also, because there are lots in the early days and then later on, there were lots of personalities to do with the Rolling Stones. One was Mick, Mick and Keith, one was <laughs> Jones, one was Bill Wyman, and one was their manager, Andrew Lou Goldham, in the early days, uh, and Charlie. And over the years, I've always thought that Charlie was their glue, their emotional glue, and also their musical glue their emotional rescue <laughs> you're way ahead of me Hudson <laughs> their emotional rescue yeah yeah um so may he rest in peace he's an extraordinary guy and, and I mean that I've met a lot of listen rock and roll has a lot of extraordinary people some of the great artists of the of the last century and this century I mean in America you've got Paul Simon and then you've got the, you, you've got the Beach Boys you've got whoever the hell else <laughs> they're, more, they're more than that but you know who the people are in England. Um, so are, are you sort of covered today for us talking? Yes. Um, Michael, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, Hudson, I'm sorry we got delayed and we were missing each other so much. But I'm, I'm... And, you, and you just heard an interview with Michael Lindsay Hogg, who produced many music videos for the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, and Wing in the Wings days. Um. If you want to send me an email, you can send me an email at BeatlesRadioShow at iCloud.com. Um, I want to just briefly talk about a new program that I've started, which is called Anytime at All Beatles Radio Show, which can be found on Mixcloud, which basically plays anything somehow connected to the Beatles. Like I can play Bob Dylan because Dylan worked with them on, worked with the Beatles with George and the Traveling Wilburys, so I can play a Tom Petty song. This won't be all the time, and I want to play artists that are influenced by the Beatles. So please go check that out. Um, again, Beatles Radio Show at iCloud.com. And uh, thank you all for listening. Shaki, put the violins on, let's go. <laughs> Release it in Italy only. Let's just make single, different single for every country. We could make all those Paris, Just the whole. Paris, just, but just every song we make, we release as a single somewhere, each two. Because <laughs> everyone suits it one country. It sounds lovely. Yeah. Well, it's faster than this.
godina.